everyone. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to the Grim Curriculum. <sighs> so this is it, folks. We've made it through a family murder, and we've covered the life and death of Butch DeFeo. Now it's haunting time. We know everyone, including us, is very excited for this part of the story, so let's get into it. We ended part two with the death of Butch DeFeo in 2021. Today, we are going back to the year 1975. The house at 112 Ocean Avenue stood vacant for 13 months after the DeFeo murders until George and Kathy Lutz purchased it for $88,000, which in my opinion is the real horror here. 28 days later, they fled the home, fearing for their lives. What they claimed that they experienced was nothing short of a nightmare. But how much of their story was actually true? As always, we are very excited to hear your thoughts after the episode. So let's talk a little bit about the Lutz family. By the time George and Kathy Lutz had even heard of 112 Ocean Avenue, they had already looked at over 50 different properties. When they arrived, the realtor showed them around, and to no one's surprise, the house blew them away. Not only was it everything they could have ever wanted, it was a bargain compared to the other homes in the area. That was when they were told that the house had been the scene of the DeFeo murders only a year prior. And while the news was shocking, it wasn't bad enough to warrant a hard pass, so they went home to discuss it with the rest of the family. After much consideration, they decided they liked the home enough that they could live with its gruesome past. They moved into 112 Ocean Avenue on December 18th, 1975. We've talked about whether or not we'd move into a murder house quite a few times on this show. In <laughs> fact, we covered them on an episode of Extra Credit, so go check that out if you haven't already. But there's something that they did that I just can't get on board with. When the DeFeos died and Butch went to jail, the house kind of was just left as is. And because of that, they bought it with just about all of the DeFeo's family's belongings still in it. And I, I really couldn't do that personally. They, they kept the beds too. Yeah, I think even if I could get over the fact of its very infamous history, I think I would have at least preferred a fresh start furniture-wise in this particular case. Like the beds, no thank you. Not considering the DeFeo family were murdered as they were sleeping. Like that just seems really taboo to me. Right, like I don't need murder beds in my murder house. No. Those close to the Lutz family were surprised at their decision. A friend suggested that they have a priest bless the home before they moved in. George would later describe how this all went down by saying, I was a Methodist, so this was new and foreign to me at the time. Father Ray showed up shortly after we were in the process of moving in. I waved, he waved, and he went on in the house and went about blessing it. When he was done, I tried to pay him, but he wouldn't take my money. He said, no, you don't charge for this, and you don't charge friends for this. I thought that was a very kind thing to say. And then he said, you know, I felt something really strange in that one upstairs bedroom. And then he described the bedroom. And we said, that's what we were going to use as a sewing room. We weren't going to use it as a bedroom. He said, that's good, as long as no one sleeps in there. And that's all he said, and he left. I feel like that would be enough for me to just stay the hell out of that room altogether. 
Father Ray also claimed that an angry voice demanded that he get out, which I feel like is a pretty classic haunting move. Yeah, exactly. Very, very uh, stereotypical ghost. Mm -hmm. The Lutz family would later claim that things began to go sideways very quickly. It started like it always does, with cold spots. After that, members of the family reported feeling an overall sense of dread while they were in the house. This escalated into loud sounds in the middle of the night that would wake up everyone in the home. Green slime began to ooze from the ceiling and down the wall. A terrible stench would also seem to come from nowhere but linger for hours. They also claimed to have found their dog hanging by his leash from the fence. He was on the brink of death. Luckily, they were able to save him and he escaped fairly unharmed. After that, he seemed incredibly reluctant to enter the home under any circumstance, and I can't say I blame him. Poor dog. I I always hate it when the animal comes into it. It's like they didn't do anything. They're just stuck with the family. Right? Leave the animals alone, ghosts. Like, go after the humans. That's not cool. Exactly. Unless you're a ghost dog. I feel like ghost dogs can haunt dogs. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what they say? It's like dog heaven is squirrel hell. (laughs) (laughs) They do say that. (laughs) Well, I don't know who they is, but I've definitely heard that before. Right, I'm familiar with it. This eventually began to have an effect on every member of the family. However, it seemed to really take its toll on George Lutz. He began spending most of his time alone. And whenever he was with his family, his temper was absolutely terrible. He also began complaining constantly that he was cold. He spent many hours wrapped in a blanket by the fireplace, shivering and muttering to himself. Strangely enough, George also found himself spending more and more time in the boathouse. He claimed he would wake up at 3.15am, which was the time of the murders, with an incredibly strong urge to visit that area. Kathy, on the other hand, was facing even bigger problems. She reported feeling like someone was touching her only to turn around and see no one anywhere near her. And if that isn't bad enough? I love this. I'm sorry. I love it. (laughs) So she said that one day she woke up from a particularly deep sleep. When she looked in the mirror, she didn't see herself looking back. Instead, she saw what she would later describe as an old hag. And if that isn't bad enough, she also said this went on for hours and hours until eventually the old hag just faded away. I mean, I definitely have felt like that some mornings. I'm not going to lie. Oh, man. Don't don't we all, honestly. (laughs) Right. We all have our old hag mornings. Oh, my God. And I am not a morning person. And I do feel very old some days, most days. So (laughs) honestly, it's relatable. She did also report having nightmares about the DeFeo murders on numerous occasions. Not only that, she once woke up with red welts all over her chest and also claimed that she levitated two feet in the air. And we can't forget about the flies. Oh yes, apparently there were huge swarms of flies in the house. No one could figure out where they were coming from and it was also winter and too cold for flies to be inside or out. That's always the one part that stuck with me from the movies, the swarms of flies like on the window. I fucking hate flies, you guys, like black flies, mosquitoes, fruit flies. I hate them all. And the idea of having my house like full of them, I hate it. 
makes my skin crawl. And having the like the kind of fly situation where they all start landing on you. Oh, and, ah, I hate it. Mm-mm. Yeah, no. If all of that wasn't bad enough, apparently all of their kids began to act out in different ways. This resulted in each of them getting beaten quite badly by their parents on multiple occasions. So, safe to say, at this point, the entire thing is a complete disaster. On one hand, we have Dad with the blanket mumbling to himself at the fireplace, and then on the other hand, we have Mom screaming about how she's turning into an old hag. Of course your kids are gonna start acting out. And that brings us to... The Demonic Pigs. Yes. The story apparently is that their youngest daughter, Missy, began talking to an imaginary friend. When her parents asked who she was speaking to, she told them that it was an angel named Jody. An angel in the shape of what she described as a large pig with glowing red eyes. I just wonder what made her think that that was an angel and not something else. Are angels known to show themselves to humans as pigs? Like, angel is not the conclusion I would jump to upon meeting a pig with glowing red eyes. Demon, yes. Angel, probably not. You know, I hate to say it. Maybe she wasn't the brightest kid. I just, I mean, okay, although... This just occurred to me. She is a kid. And so maybe she hasn't been like watching all the spooky movies. And, you know, maybe her imagination hasn't been kind of like tainted towards the negative. So maybe she's like, hey, sure, there's a pig with glowing eyes. It says it's my friend. Angel it is. Honestly, I'm so far from that that I don't even accept that as a potential reality. You're probably right. (laughs) I'm just like, that can't be real. What's optimism? It would never have occurred to me at a young age, even because I was pretty much corrupted from a super young age watching Exactly. I would have been like, well, that's Satan. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) The story was backed up by her parents, who also claimed that they saw large red glowing eyes looking at them through the bedroom window. When they asked Missy if she knew what they wanted, she told them that Jody just wanted to come into the house. Not today, Jody. Yeah, absolutely not. Jody's not coming in the house. Also, isn't Jody already in the house? I'm so confused. I know, you know, I just don't trust Jody. No, I don't. And also, I mean, not that all angels necessarily need to be like super biblical, but Jody doesn't strike me as an angel name, you know? I, I feel like it doesn't quite jive. If you're listening and your name is Jody, we love you and you're beautiful. Yes. And, and you are an angel. Unless you want to be a demon, because we support that too here. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Okay, back to demon pigs. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, you're good. So yeah, they they were like, okay, let's invite some friends over and see if you guys also have a strange experience that we're having. While their friends didn't report any demon pigs, they did say that they heard voices and footsteps coming from upstairs despite no one being there. This was a huge relief for the Lutzes. They weren't imagining things. Something strange really was happening. George would later describe this as being a very emotional moment for him due to the relief that he felt knowing that they weren't the only ones who experienced something strange. This eventually continued until the night of January 13th, 1976. George Lutz would later describe the events of that night by saying... I was lying in bed and everyone was asleep and Kathy lifts up from the bed and starts to slide away from the bed and away from me. 
I feel something get in the bed with us. I'm unable to move. I hear the kids' beds continually slamming up and down on the floor and being dragged. We heard these pigeons on the air conditioner top overhead from the master bathroom, and they're fluttering all night long, and yet there are no pigeons there the next morning, or any nest or anything like that. The lights flickered. We bought the dog up to stay right by the bedroom. We tied him right to the doorknob, and he's up, going in circles and throwing up all night. The boys came down in the morning absolutely frightened. They were unable to get down to me, and I was unable to get up to them. Missy came in and just asked what that was all about, and Kathy had no memory of much of it. That day, we spent trying to get a hold of Father Ray, and he said all the right words. They fled the home the following morning. I wonder if these particular events inspired the creators of like the Paranormal Activity series because they seem to have some similarities, like the being dragged out of bed by like an unseen force and how it kind of is a demonic presence like attacking a family kind of thing. It's interesting that you think that because I never linked it together until you said that, but you're 100% right. Mm-hmm. It's. I mean, I guess it just goes to show that the writers of Paranormal Activity took their inspiration from kind of these real life events, which is kind of cool. Yeah, definitely. A little over a month later, they decided to start sharing their story. They became involved with Channel 5's Laura DiDio, who immediately knew that she had one hell of a story on her hands. And this is when Ed and Lorraine Warren entered the picture. Should we get into those two a little bit? Oh, I mean, we have to. Like, eventually we're going to do a whole episode on them. But long story short, Ed and Lorraine Warren were basically the power couple of the paranormal world. Many of you are probably familiar with them due to The Conjuring and the Annabelle movies. And if you're interested in the true story of Annabelle, please check out our Haunted Dolls episode, which is episode eight. It's like forever ago. ago. Yeah, we've come such a long way. Can I share a fun movie fact with you? Yes, of course. Okay, in the first Conjuring movie during the beginning when Ed is, uh, he's giving that lecture, Mm -hmm. for a split second, the real Lorraine Warren shows up in the front row seat of the audience and she's like just sitting there. That's really cool. I really enjoy the Conjuring series and like all the spinoffs and everything. And I was kind of saying this to Dina off mic before we started. I love the characters of Ed and Lorraine in the movies. Um, But let's just say that the writers of the movies took some creative liberties with them because they were a wee bit different in reality. Yes, it's a very polite way of saying that. Yeah, we'll we'll get into it in an episode (laughs) at some point. You guys can let us know if that's something you want us to cover. I mean, we want to cover it, so it's going to happen. But yeah, they're, they're an interesting couple. And they will probably continue to pop up throughout our episodes because they were involved in a lot of stuff oh yeah they're all over the place once the warrens got involved all hell broke loose literally and figuratively so lorraine was a medium and she reported to feel an overwhelming sense of sadness and desperation in every single room of the house Ed had a much more dramatic experience he talked about it in an interview a few years later It was as if I were standing underneath a waterfall, and the pressure was driving me down to the floor, and I commanded, in the name of Jesus Christ, what was there to reveal its identity, and I understood at that point that what we were dealing with was no ghost. This was no ordinary haunted house. Very dramatic. I know. 
They toured the house and continued to assess it for any other strange activity, and they concluded that 112 Ocean Avenue was haunted by ghosts with a few demons sprinkled into the mix. On March 6, 1976, Ed and Lorraine gathered some of the top psychics that they knew for an official investigation. Along for the ride were Marvin Scott, Steve Petropolis, and Laura DiDio from Channel 5 News, along with a camera crew. Along with them was time walker mary pascarella and a time walker is someone who can sense and see things that occurred in the past in particular places mary claimed that when she entered the home she began to pray to herself and was repeating the words our father when she entered the home she claimed to see a group of figures standing outside of the door saying our father backwards Ruo, if anyone is curious Retaf Ruo being chanted at you over and over would be creepy as hell. See this, and again, I'm not a paranormal act- uh, activity. I'm not a paranormal <laughs> investigator, but I wonder how she figured out that that's what was being said. Because yes, they are in you know the paranormal business, so maybe stuff like that is common, like words being flipped around. Mm-hmm. But I would have just assumed a different language or that it was just like gibberish. Like it wouldn't have occurred to me to be like, oh, yes, that's backwards English, you know? Right. Who would think of that? Not who me. Would, who would think of that? <laughs> <laughs> Not Alpha me. <laughs> Not fucking me. That's for sure. The team reported feeling many of the same cold spots that the Lutz family had reported. Steve Petropolis of Channel 5 News was affected in a much more concerning way. He actually began to experience heart issues while at the house. He started to have really bad heart palpitations and trouble breathing in various areas of the home. The group then decided that a seance was the best course of action, which is probably not my first choice, but okay. No, because in the best case scenario, poor Steve is having some heart issues and you should probably take him to a doctor or call an ambulance. Ed and Lorraine were busy trying to find ghosts, okay? They didn't have time for Steve and his issues. I know, priorities, I guess. Exactly. Mary immediately began feeling sick and eventually had to be escorted out of the room. She later reported that she saw what she described as a black shadow forming ahead and moving around. She also said that it moved around in a threatening manner. Another one of the psychics, Alberta Riley, added to her claim saying that whatever she felt was present in one of the bedrooms upstairs. It was also during this time that the now infamous ghost boy photo was taken, and we're going to be sharing it on the YouTube video and the socials because it is uh, it's something else. It really is. And it was brought to the attention of the public three years after the investigation. We will say that George Lutz chose to reveal this photo on a talk show. So, you know, take that with a pinch of salt, maybe. Yes. And a lot of this was happening during like the big daytime talk show era. They claimed that the photo was taken by one of the cameramen, Gene Campbell. Gene had set up a camera that would automatically take infrared photos at various intervals. When the film was developed, a young boy could unmistakably be seen peering over the stair railing. Many believed that the person in the photo was simply one of the investigators. But as it stands, most people believe that it's proof of the paranormal. And a lot of these believers say that the boy in the photo is none other than the spirit of John DeFeo. And with that, dear listeners, what do you think? Man or boy? 
when it comes to this entire case, I'm going to admit I am very, very skeptical. When Yes, like, if you couldn't tell by, like, the way we're speaking about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. That being said, I look at the picture and I have a really hard time seeing a grown man in that picture. Like, I find the comparison of the boy and John DeFeo to be pretty shocking. But at the end of the day, I just feel like it's it's almost too ghostly looking for me to believe, if that makes any sense. Again, a lot of the things in this particular case are so cliched that if one or two of the things were happening, to me, it would be a bit more believable, but it's all happening all at once. Do you know what I mean? It's like they had a checklist. Exactly. <laughs> it's like the the paranormal ghost haunting checklist. And also, speaking of checklists, if you have played Phasmophobia, fun fact, the photo of the ghost boy is in the van. Uh, or at least it was at some point. It has been a while since I played, but it was definitely there in the beginning when the game first came out. And I think a few of the photos like on the same bulletin board in the van are from real life paranormal cases. So it's a little Easter egg for you guys out there. I didn't know that. That is yeah. so neat. Yeah. So next time you're playing, uh, take a look at the bulletin board in the van. And it's got all the like newspaper articles and stuff yeah. into it. But they are real photos from real uh, real life cases. So that's pretty cool. That is really cool. Lorraine Warren said the following about 112 Ocean Avenue. Whatever is here is, in my estimation, most definitely of a negative nature. It has nothing to do with anyone who had once walked the earth in human form. It is right from the bowels of the earth. She added, Whatever is here is able to move around at will. It doesn't have to stay here, but I think it's a resting place. When the investigation was concluded, the Warrens stated that the only way to fix the situation would be to conduct an exorcism on the house. However, this wasn't something that the Lutz family, who still legally owned the home, were really down for. First of all, they weren't interested in putting their children back into the home. And secondly, they claim to have legitimately thought they would all die if they returned to 112 Ocean Avenue. They felt the best course of action would be to cut all ties with the house and sell it back to the bank. They moved away and would, mostly, stand by their claims for the rest of their lives. However, many people refused to believe what they had experienced. Kathy Lutz would later say this about the naysayers. Some people have called our testimony about Amityville a hoax. There is nothing that I could say to them. There is nothing I could show them that would be new evidence that this is the truth. It is the truth. It is my testimony. It is where I came from. And to judge another's testimony, not having experienced it, not having gone through it or been touched by it, you don't have the right to. Yours is an opinion and the opinion doesn't hold water. Something interesting to me is that I believe her so much less than I believe him. I don't know why. I'll hold off on sharing my full thoughts until the end, but I just buy so much more of his version of events more than hers. I don't know. What about you? That's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about it that way because I just kind of assumed that they were in on it together. I could see it going either way where we have sort of one person fabricating this situation and the other person being totally gaslit into thinking it's real yeah I just he's a better storyteller like I feel like her, the stuff that she says happens it's again it's just too good again there's so much about it where if it was just one or two things I'd probably be more inclined to believe it but just it's so much exactly so George spoke about the after effects of his experience saying 
It's my prayer that everyone in this room never go through such a thing. But if you know someone that does, the hardest thing for those people is the loss of being able to communicate with anyone else about it. Not being able to find anyone that can intelligently help them. It's not talked about. It's not understood. And when it happens to you, you become an alien to everyone else. And I, I kind of get this. Like, it's one thing to say you've had a paranormal experience or that you saw a ghost, but their story is so extreme that I can also see where he's coming from. Because to him, maybe it was one of those things that if you heard it happening to someone else, you wouldn't believe it, but he couldn't believe it was happening to him. Yeah. And part of that makes me wonder if he, however you want to explain it, whether it was a true paranormal experience or if it was mental illness, it makes me think that perhaps he was going through some shit and that she was almost just kind of playing along with it, which obviously would not have helped the situation. There's so many reasons for them to have maybe fabricated this. Especially, and I mean, we'll get into it in a short little while, but especially when you find out that money was made from mm. it, you know, it starts to really make you skeptical. But I digress. While the Lutz family had no desire to return to the house, they sure had no problem talking about it. And talk about it, they sure did. This is where the story kind of starts to fall apart for me. So they took everything that had happened during the investigation to Jay Anson, who would go on to write the now quite famous The Amityville Horror, A True Story. This book later became the basis for the many, many, many movies about the Amityville haunting. It wasn't a collaborate effort or anything, but they provided him with over 45 hours of tape-recorded information. And Anson maintained that this story was 100% true because, in his words, There is simply too much independent corroboration of their narrative to support the speculation that the Lutzes either imagined or fabricated these events. The book went on to sell over 10 million copies. We aren't going to get into the book too much, but I've read it and it's honestly a pretty fun read if you're into hauntings. Like, take it with a giant grain of salt, obviously, but it's just an entertaining story. Totally. And you know what? He does somewhat make a point that I can get behind. And that's when the Warrens, Ed and Lorraine, showed up to do their investigation. They brought quite a few other people with them. And yes, Everybody could have been in on it, but typically the more people you have involved in a scam, the more likely it is to kind of fall apart. Oh, absolutely. So in that sense, I, you know, fair point to him. That all aside, all of this led even more people to believe that the story was indeed made up in order to make as much money for everyone involved as possible. Skeptics began to investigate the Lutz's family's claims further, and it didn't take long before the story began to unravel. For example, the priest that they claimed was involved in the story swore in an affidavit that the only time he had spoken to the Lutz family had been over the phone. This was a far cry from their claims about him warning them about the home and hearing voices. Many are also quick to point out that the story changes slightly every time the book is updated, which, as it turns out, has been quite often. And this was also around the time that The Exorcist came out, and there are a lot of folks out there who believe that the entire story was influenced by the movie. Despite what people thought, there's no doubt that everybody was talking about what had happened at 112 Ocean Avenue again. 
And of course, at this point, the story was all over the news. A huge haunting in a murder house is one hell of a story. Especially in the 70s. Oh my god. In May of 1977, the Lutz family filed a lawsuit against William Weber, who had represented Butch DeFeo in his trial, as well as Good Housekeeping magazine, the New York Sunday News, and the Hearst Corporation. They claimed that there had been a huge invasion of privacy due to articles that were published about them. They also said that all of this caused them severe mental duress. This case was thrown out. And for the record, they sued William Weber because he told People magazine that he and the Lutz family made the entire story up over a few bottles of wine one evening. So scandalous. Mm-hmm. A 1979 Washington Post article talks about these lawsuits in more detail, saying that the Lutzes didn't work after Amityville. They actually claimed that they were struggling financially pretty badly after everything had happened. However, George Lutz later testified that they made around $200,000 in 1970s money. We also want to point out that at one point during all of this, George would go on to say that the story in the book was mostly true. They would also go on to take polygraphs that indicated that they were not lying. However, we now know that those are definitely not always accurate. Over the years, many different families have called that house their home. Not a single one of them has claimed to have had any sort of paranormal experience. And I do just want to say that the most recent owners of the house have completely remodeled the front of it so it doesn't look anything like the home. And they have had the address changed to, I think it's 108 Ocean Avenue. It's also not visible on Google Maps as well. You can't see it from the street. They've asked that it be kind of blurred out too. So you can't even really get a peek at it. But I think... Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Gina, I think the thing that they changed was those like half moon kind or the quarter moon kind of windows to a different shape. Yes. And that was the one thing about the house is everyone, the big pic- famous photo of the house with the demon eye windows and all of mm-hmm. that, right? Either way, whether you believe it or not, it's hard to deny that the history of what was once 112 Ocean Avenue is truly an amazing one. And that, dear listeners, concludes our series on the Amityville haunting. All right, Charlotte, hoax or real? You know, when someone comes to you with an experience, who am I to tell you that you didn't experience that? However, there's some <laughs> there's some problems with this story. Um, I think potentially that maybe there were some strange goings on, you know, I can imagine that living in a house where you know that it's had a pretty gruesome and terrible history can have effects on your mental health. And I think probably it just got a little bit out of control and suddenly there was sort of this infamy around it and I think the family kind of went along with it. So in that sense, I lean more towards hoax. Mm Mm-hmm. Especially once the Warrens got involved. And again, we'll get into it at some point, but the Warrens have a fairly shady history when it comes to this sort of stuff. Yes, they they have a bit of a a reputation, let's say. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I, I think the mind, it's it's a powerful thing, right? Like they yeah. knew the history of the house and maybe they did experience something, but then they just blew it all out of proportion. And when they realized they could make money from it, they just told the absolute craziest story that they could think of. When people validate you, then it just gets more and more and more, right? So when you have these psychics coming in and being like, yeah, I totally feel it, then you kind of get caught up in it. Oh, definitely. Like, I honestly, I wouldn't be shocked if this entire thing was made up over a few bottles of wine one night. No, going back to uh, Mr. Weber, who uh, defended Butch, I could, I can imagine him being like, what are they talking about? Like, we made this up over pasta and wine. Are they crazy? Right? I'm curious to know you guys' thoughts on it. Yes, and back it up. What may, If you think it's real, why? If you think it's not, why? Tell us. We want to know. Absolutely. If you have been hearing some little chirps in the background, that is the lovely Sophie and Earl having a great time. <laughs> I, you know, if I feed them before I record, then they're like chirpy and happy and full. If I don't feed them before I record, then they're hungry and they're meowing at me anyway. They just, I think they just have a lot of opinions about ghosts. And you know what? Of all the critters, I feel like cats are the ones that are most in touch with the other side, if any are. Right. I would I would listen to a cat's opinion about ghosts. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially when ones... I said that. So there you go. See? Yeah, there you go. And especially when they've got the life experience that Sophie and Earl have. Like, my God. Oh, exactly. They're wise ones. They are. We want to take a moment to thank the glorious folks over on our grim VIP Patreon tiers and up. Big, wonderful thank you, as always, to the wonderful Mudkip, Kevin, Judy, Hillary, Brian, Atlantean Jedi, Pink Flamingo 20, Lisa, and Bob. I don't know why I said your name like that, Bob. That was kind of, like, strange, but Bob is on the list. Bob. So he... <laughs> I love the variety in all of those names. Yeah, it's, all, you know, again, I say this a million times. I say that a million times, but it is truly a huge deal to us that so many of you guys... F- fucking support us on all different levels it means the world thank you so much to me it blows my mind when folks find the podcast that like don't know either of us already mm-hmm. and then they start listening and they start supporting because it's just like people are finding us and they're listening to us and they like us who to thunk man <laughs> yeah makes me think of the paul rudd meme you know when he's on hot ones and he's like look at us who'd have thought <laughs> yeah exactly i love it Also, today, the day we are recording this episode, is June 1st, and that means it is officially Pride Month. And in support of our 2S LGBTQ homies out there, we're going to be linking some of our favorite LGBTQ charities down in the description below, and we're also going to be making a donation on behalf of the podcast. So you can check those out if you like. Happy Pride, guys. We love you all you're beautiful um don't forget to follow us on the socials and if you liked this particular series or any of the other series series that we've done please leave us some love on whatever platform you're listening on it helps us a lot with that crusty algorithm thank you all so much for listening this has been the The grim Grim Curriculum. curriculum
Hey, Dina, today I have for you a fun fact because it is June 1st as of the day we're recording. Mm -hmm. And June 1st, uh, if you have a birthday on June 1st, you also share a birthday with uh, the son of Sam himself, David Berkowitz. So now that's something fun for you. It's Gemini season. It's Pride season. And it's also David Berkowitz's birthday. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.